Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 260, How to Argue that the Bible is Trinitarian. So when they asked me what my title was, I initially said, How Not to Argue from the Bible to the Trinity. And then I said to myself, Tuggy, why be so negative? (laughs) So by the time I get to the end of my talk, I will be giving sincere advice to my Trinitarian friends about how to go about showing that the Bible is Trinitarian. And of course, I'll be talking about arguments that don't work as well. So there are basically three different stances that different Christian groups take about how the Bible relates to the Trinity. You can illustrate the differences really easy by this inconsistent triad. So an inconsistent triad is three claims that they cannot all be true. Just by logic, if any two of them are true, then the third one is false. To be consistent, you have to deny one of these. And what's interesting is, at the beginning at least, they're plausible to many people. And so it looks like a significant choice that you have to make. So the first one is, any core Christian doctrine must be clearly taught in the Bible. Seems reasonable. Second one is, the Trinity is a core Christian doctrine. This is assumed by many people for a long time. Third, the Trinity is not clearly taught in the Bible. Honestly, this is what the better scholars say about that. So the first way to approach it is what this guy would endorse, and he just denies the first. Roman Catholics do not think that any core Christian doctrine must be clearly taught in the Bible because Mother Church is more foundational than the Bible. They say the Church gave you the Bible, we'll tell you how to read it, and we can tell you anything else that you need to know as well. A second approach is by our friend Johnny Boy here. They deny that the Trinity is not clearly taught in the Bible. In other words, it is clearly taught. It's just right there. What's wrong with you? Why can't you see it? I really think there's a devastating historical problem for this type of view. If the Trinity is an obvious teaching in the Bible, then why did it take so long for people to get this obvious teaching? We know just by experience that obvious teachings of a text are understood immediately by many probably most competent readers. Now, if you really dig hard into the history, if your name is not Keegan Chandler, you probably haven't done this. If you dig really hard into the history, you'll realize that no Bible reader before around 350, probably a little bit later than that, no reader thought that the Bible teaches the one God to be a trinity of three co-equal distinct divine persons. You have a lot of interesting views, but that's not one of them, right up until around that council in 381. Okay, but it follows from those that the Trinity is not an obvious teaching of the Bible. Maybe it's a teaching of the Bible, but it's not an obvious one, because if it were, you would have early readers acknowledging it, and you don't have that. You don't see it in history. And of course, the third option is the one that I think is correct. You should deny the second one. The Trinity is a core Christian doctrine. It's not a core Christian doctrine in my view. You can subtract it and all you get is greater clarity on what the actual New Testament message is. 
Okay, but I'm discussing the view that the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Bible, and somehow you can see this if you try hard enough, or if you reason carefully, you, you can somehow start with the Bible and you can get the Trinity out of it, or see that the Trinity is, is in some sense there. Now, in what sense could the Trinity be there? Well, it could be there as explicitly asserted, like the resurrection of Jesus is there in the text. It could be implicitly asserted, right? You can implicitly assert something without actually saying it, and it can still be a very clear teaching. A little bit weaker than that, and a lot of people go for this, a claim might just be assumed in a text. So they don't bother to say it. They're not asserting it because they don't need to assert it because it's just something that everybody knows. For instance, monotheism is to a large extent assumed in the New Testament. They do say it sometimes, but mostly it's just kind of hovering in the background because, you know, they're mostly Jews and it doesn't need to be asserted. It's just something they agree on. So every honest reader will have to admit right away that the Trinity is not explicitly asserted in the Bible. It's just not. Nobody can point to the passage. So all honest interpreters and all honest scholars just say, no, it's just it's not explicitly asserted. Now, what about these second two, implicitly asserted or just merely assumed? Well, people do like this, at least a certain kind of eager beaver, namely Christian apologists. Christian apologists and young male aficionados of apologetics material on the internet. I can mock it because this was me in the early 90s and mid-90s. I'm a good reasoner. I would like to sally forth and explain to all the silly non-Trinitarians what it is they're missing that's so obvious. So the game for apologists is to go for the second and third, to try to show that the Trinity is implicitly asserted or maybe just merely assumed in Scripture. What's so interesting once you get to know the landscape is that theologians are not like that. They do not care to argue this. It's not in their interest to argue it, and they don't. It would spoil all the fun. A friend of mine, Kermit Zarley, you know, lifelong evangelical, he spent decades reading on this issue of the deity of Christ, reading hundreds, thousands of scholarly articles about this, and he has theologian friends, and they just have no interest in debating him. They're just like, I would be giving airtime to the enemy so it's interesting, they presuppose it and like to talk about how awesome it is, but they don't want to argue. That's one thing I do appreciate about the apologists, they're actually trying to argue. And it's something that does need to be argued, because I don't think it's true that the Bible implies or assumes any Trinity doctrine. Theologians, they're just having fun. Let's celebrate the Trinity as something that Christians have always agreed on. How about we just wave our hands and say the Trinity's taught in the whole Bible? Not in any one passage, of course, but it's in the whole Bible. It's just, you know, hold it up and say, it's in here. Well, I mean, look, this is learned fakery. This is not serious. Why should I think it's in the whole Bible? Or just say, look, you can just observe the Trinity in some passage. This is in the ESV study Bible. Just look at Jesus' baptism. There's a trinity right there, right? No, it's not there at all. You got Jesus in the water. You got the voice of God. And then maybe you got a bird or something like a bird. Where's the uh, three hypostases and one usia in this? Where's the tripersonal God? He doesn't make an appearance in this scene. 
the reason they want to say you can just observe it is because what's what you can just observe doesn't need to be argued. It's just look, it's just right there, you know, or they'll point to the Great Commission passage. No, it's not serious. I would love there to be more arguments because I think our side would do pretty well. You know, the establishment academics, it's not in their interest, right? If you argue, you might lose. If you never argue, you never lose arguments about this. You're already content to play these games with uh, speculating about the doctrine. Okay, so back to the guys that I appreciate in the sense that they're trying to argue, these apologists, they're trying to show us how you start with the Bible, and then by a series of careful inferences, you get to the Trinity. All right, so they're trying to go stone by stone from one to the other and show us how that works. You know, they're trying to show us what it is we're missing. But what exactly is it that needs to be shown? One of the main points of my talk is there's a kind of goalpost moving here where what you're going to count for success, you've lowered the bar, and then you're surprised how easy success is. Okay, so what has to be deduced? I could have picked a lot of things to answer the question, what is it that we have to deduce from the Bible to show that the Trinity is implicitly in the Bible? I picked the Westminster Confession of Faith, a famous early modern Reformed confession. Here's their expression of the Trinity. In the unity of the Godhead the divine nature, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. How many claims are there there? I count about ten. So you've got the one divine nature with three persons. Those three persons have one substance. Those three persons have one power. They have one eternity. And one of those persons is the Father. One of them is the Son. One is the Holy Spirit. The Father doesn't come from anything, and the other two come from another. So that's kind of a lot that needs to be deduced. It's not a really simple matter. Uh, it's a pretty complex matter. Now, I need to say a little bit about deduction, because that's important to understanding these arguments, so forgive me, there's some logic class stuff here. There are different styles of arguments, but what most of these apologists are doing most of the time are deductive arguments. These are the arguments that they teach traditionally in university in an introductory logic class. A deductive argument is supposed to be valid, and valid means that if the premises were each true, then the conclusion would have to be true. A valid argument just means that there's a necessary link between the truth of the premises and the conclusion. So this is a valid argument on the right here. I don't think it's an argument you should endorse, but it is valid. If it's true that if God existed, there would be no evil, if that's true, and if it's also true that there is evil, then it would have to also be true that it is not the case that God exists. So if one and two are true, then just logically three has to be true. Deductive arguments focus the conversation. You either have to show the conclusion doesn't follow or you have to deny a premise. With this one, I would deny premise one. We would probably all agree on that. Okay, so it's valid argument, but we want more than just the argument to be valid, but I'll get to that in a second. Here's another example of an attempt at a deductive argument. Premise one, according to the Old Testament, there's some sort of plurality with respect to God. 
Premise two, according to the Old Testament, monotheism is true. Conclusion, therefore, according to the Old Testament, the one God is multiple persons. Now, hopefully you can see there's a yawning gap between one and two and three. You could accept one and two and deny three. I would accept one and two. Here's a kind of plurality with respect to God. He appears in different ways. Or he's loving and he's just. There's plurality. It's not the kind of plurality a Trinitarian wants. So if an argument fails to be valid, if it's invalid, then you could consistently accept all the premises and you could deny the conclusion because the premises do not imply the conclusion. One way that a deductive argument fails is the conclusion just simply doesn't follow from the premises. It's just a complete miss. Okay, but we want more than just valid arguments. We want sound arguments. A sound argument is just an argument that's valid, so if the premises were true, the conclusion would be true. And also, the premises are true. So then this kind of argument does give you a reason to believe the conclusion. Here's an argument probably we would agree is valid and sound. If God exists, there is no absolute privacy. Right? Whatever you do, there's always somebody in on it besides you, right? Because he's necessarily omniscient. Premise two, God exists, so therefore there is no absolute privacy. Even an atheist would agree that it's valid, right? If one and two are true, then three would be true. But those of us who believe in God, we would say, yeah, it's valid, but it's also sound because the premises are true. Okay, so when it comes to these type of arguments, we want the conclusion to really follow we need to have some reason for people to agree with the premises. If you're actually trying to persuade anybody, the premises should be things that are plausible to them. And if you're trying to refute an opponent, the best kind of argument like this is where they accept the premises and they maybe don't realize the conclusion follows. So, you know, according to your view, you should accept this, this, and this, but then here's a conclusion that follows wow, what are they going to do? I mean, now they have to deny a premise or try to say it's not really a valid argument after all. As I said, there are other kinds of arguments. I'm going to talk about one of them later. Science doesn't particularly depend on deductive arguments. They use other kinds of reasoning. But in theology and philosophy and ethics and political arguments, deductive arguments are pretty uh, central. So the strength of a deductive argument is the premises don't just make the conclusion likely. The conclusion has to be true if the premises are all true. They're all or nothing. The premises either 100% support the conclusion or they don't support it at all. You're not just raising the probability or raising the likelihood of the conclusion. The weak point of any deductive argument is that in some sense, the information that's in the conclusion has to already be in the premises. So if you have a valid deductive argument, somebody who knew just the premises, in a sense, they already kind of know the conclusion if they're, if they're smart enough, if they're careful enough. Here's an argument just to illustrate this point that you don't get new information from a deductive argument. It just helps you draw out consequences from things that you already know or have good reason to believe. So here's a little argument to, just to help you see that point. If you say, uh, premise one, all philosophers are godless heathens, and premise two is Dale is a philosopher. I've already made the point, right? You know where this is going. You already know what the conclusion is going to say because you just understood the premises. 
So, I mean, the information in three was already sort of encoded in one and two. And this is just how deductive arguments work. Uh, you don't get new information from them. They just help you draw out consequences from things that you already believe or are committed to. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I examine a very influential argument by a modern Trinitarian scholar. I want to give now two examples of scholars and apologists trying to deduce the Trinity from the Bible. My first example is this very influential encyclopedia article written by the Reformed theologian B.B. Warfield. It's an interesting article. It bristles with problems, honestly, but it's bold and it's interestingly written, and uh, you can easily find this online. In part of it that has been much discussed, Warfield says, when we have said these three things, there's only three things that need to be proven, okay? When we have said these three things that, and I put the numbers in, that there is but one God, that Father, Son, and Spirit is each God. I'm not sure why there's a singular is there, but, and three, that the Father and Son and the Spirit is each a distinct person. Then we have enunciated the doctrine of the Trinity in its completeness. Okay, so he's saying, if I can just deduce those three little old things from the Bible, then I have been victorious in my endeavor. One thing that's weird about this passage is he seems to not know how to count claims, because there's way more than three. That there's one God, that's one claim. Then there's the claim that the Father's God, the Son's God, and the Spirit's God. That's three more claims, not one claim. And then to say that they're each distinct, that's three more claims. The Father's distinct from the Son, Son's distinct from the Spirit, the Father's distinct from the Spirit. There's really seven claims in there. Okay, so it's already harder than he really wants to let on. But what he's basically doing is giving us the following deductive argument. There is only one God, second, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Each of them are God. Third, the Father and Son and the Spirit are different persons. And so the conclusion is, Therefore, the doctrine of the Trinity is true. If I can just show you these three premises, I will have shown that logically follows that the Trinity is true. But look, this is just not right. This is not a valid argument. You could accept one, two, and three and deny four. It looks like it's possible for one, two, and three to be true and four to be false. So it's just invalid. It's a, it's a swing and a miss. It's a total whiff. One way that you can see that you could consistently accept one, two, and three and deny four is just consider some heretical opinions. Okay, so what theologians call a modalist, or like a modalistic monarchian from Christian history, they would say there's one God, check, we agree with that. Father, Son, and Spirit, each God, yep, we agree with that. Father, Son, and Spirit are each a distinct person, absolutely. And by person, we mean persona, personality, something like that, right? Okay, well, they would accept one, two, and three, but they wouldn't accept four, that the Trinity is true. 
So it just shows you that four doesn't follow from one, two, and three. Or take a subordinationist Unitarian, someone like Origen or Tertullian or Novation, some of these second and third century guys. What would they say? Yes, there's one God. Mm-hmm. They agree with that. Yep, that's the Father. Mm-hmm. Not the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit is each God. Yeah, sure, those are divine beings. Only one of them is the one true God, but the other ones are divine in a lesser sense. So they're each distinct? Yeah, they're three beings. I mean, this is what Origen thinks. The later originist Pamphilus summarizes Origen's view as that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the three greatest beings in order. The Father's the greatest, the Son's the second greatest, the eternal Logos is the second greatest, and the Spirit is the third greatest. Okay, well then they would accept Warfields 1, 2, and 3, and they wouldn't accept 4. So it's a mistake in reasoning. Four doesn't follow from one through three. There aren't three things to show. There's at least seven, according to his own statement. Really, I think there's more than those seven, right? We counted 10 in the Westminster Confession. Once I met this guy, and he told me that he could uh, slam dunk the ball 20 times in a row without error. He's like, you've heard of Michael Jordan? I said, yeah. He said, an amateur. I'm looking at this guy. He's this shrimpy little white guy like me. I'm thinking, what's the chance this guy can actually slam dunk the ball 20 times in a row and not miss it? You know, and then I saw his basket at his house. Yeah, you know, it turned out I could do it too. I was pretty proud of myself. All right, so if you lower the bar for success low enough, then you can just say a few things, spike the ball and declare victory and then hope that nobody notices that you lowered the bar. No self-respecting basketball fan would accept this as slam dunking. Come on, it's embarrassing. So where do we get this idea that you could just take like three or four claims and, and that's all that the Trinity is? I don't know. I don't think it started with Warfield. I kind of suspect it might have started with this uh, Trinity shield thing that was invented in the high Middle Ages and popularized in the early modern era, you're more likely to see it in this less ornate version. So the one God's supposed to be the whole thing, right? That's one claim. And they're each not each other. So that's three more claims. And each is God, so it's three more. So you get seven claims this way. But what about the rest of the claims? Just because you got a little chart here doesn't show you that you've proven everything that needs to be proven. My next example is from a still-living person, friendly acquaintance of mine, Dr. Robert M. Bowman, Jr. He has this article called The Biblical Basis of the Doctrine of the Trinity, and he tells us in the introduction that he's been working on different drafts of this since the 1970s. You know, he's a mainstream evangelical, and he's concerned to show the Jehovah's Witnesses why they're missing the point about the Bible and the Trinity. And without going into all the, the proof text, I'm just in this talk looking at the structure of the overall argument. In the end of his piece, he says, all the elements of the doctrine are taught in Scripture. Second, the New Testament presents a consistent triad of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, Christ, Spirit. Therefore, the Bible does teach the Trinity. Okay. Now, this is an interesting little argument. It looks like it's a valid argument, but it's a little strange because you don't need that second premise. The second premise is just kind of thrown in there. 
to jump to something I'm going to discuss later, I think he's thrown in that second premise because he thinks that's something that only his theology can explain. And he thinks that Unitarian theologies can't explain that these three things are grouped together, that these three are mentioned together. So I think that's why he's throwing it in there. But the argument doesn't need that premise because three just follows from the one premise alone. So really, you just have this really simple argument. All the elements of the doctrine are taught in Scripture, and therefore the Bible does teach the Trinity. Well, sure, if one is true, then two would have to be true. But your next question should be, what are all the elements of the doctrine? Because if, if you're not really including all the elements, then uh, you haven't done enough to show that the Trinity is in the New Testament. Okay, so he tells us in the rest of his article. So it's valid in the sense that the conclusion follows from the one premise, but is it sound? We want to know, is that one premise true? This is what he says all the elements are. There's one God who is one divine being. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And then he adds that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons. That is to say, they are not each other, nor are they impersonal. They relate to one another personally. And then he continues, anyone who affirms these propositions is affirming what is essential to the doctrine of the Trinity, since this is just what the doctrine of the Trinity says. Well, those are things that Trinitarians say, but look what has gone missing. There's no mention of a tripersonal God in there. It's not clear what's become of the classical claim that there are three hypostases here with one usia, with one essence or nature. Like, where was that in there? Is it supposed to be the is God stuff? Um, it's a little bit unclear. What happened to the eternal generation and procession, and then the Father being of none? They weren't mentioned at all. Okay, so it looks like we might be dealing with this kind of slam dunker. Because we've left out the very things that are the most hard to somehow get out of the Bible. The Bible doesn't have any word that was then understood to refer to a tripersonal God. That's really surprising. Because if you believe in a tripersonal God, the very first thing you do is come up with a word to refer to that thing. All right, so why do they only have the word God, which almost always means the Father, maybe a couple times means the Son or Spirit? It doesn't fit their explanation that well. And there's another problem, too. He's saying these things are taught by the Scripture, uh, and this is all I need for the Trinity, but what is this is God stuff? Is God could mean a bunch of different things. It could mean represents God, it could mean have the divine essence, it could mean just being God himself. So here's one interpretation of his claims. There's exactly one God, that is to say one divine being. The Father just is God, we're collapsing the two. It's like Abram is Abraham. There's not two there, there's really just one there. So the Father just is God, the Son just is God, the Spirit just is God, and then none of these just is one another, Father, Son, Spirit. In other words, those are three different things, three different beings. Oh, and each one's a person. This is one interpretation of his claims. The problem with this is that two and three imply that the Father just is the Son, because things that are identical to the same thing are identical to each other. If Abe in the Old Testament, just is Abraham, and Abram just is Abraham, then it follows that Abe just is Abram. Okay, so then it follows from two and three that the Father is the Son. Now that's terrible right there. The Trinitarian even should agree with that, right? 
they shouldn't say that the father's crucified, the father sent himself, and things like that. Okay, but it's worse than that because five has told us that the father is not the son and vice versa. So five tells us that um, father and son are not the same. It's not such that one just is the other. And on this interpretation, two and three are saying, oh, guess what? They are one another. So this is a contradictory set of claims. Two and three and five can't all be true. Now, if you're going to tell me that this is what the Bible teaches, you're foisting inconsistency onto the Bible. Doesn't that tell you that you need to go back to the drawing board and maybe give them the benefit of the doubt? Try to see if you can understand it in a way that is consistent. Okay, but that's not the only interpretation. A lot of Trinitarians, when they say, when we say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, no, no, we're not collapsing them. We're not saying that the one just is the other. We're saying that they're divine. Okay, fine. So it's exactly one God, one divine being. Father's divine, Son's divine, the Spirit's divine. Oh, and these are different, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each is a person. These can't all be true, one, two, three, and five. If there's only one divine being, that's inconsistent with the Father's a divine being, the Son's divine being, and the Father and Son are different. Again, it looks like you're foisting an inconsistency onto the authors of the Bible. It looks like an uncharitable reading. Usually when you come up with an inconsistent interpretation of the Bible, you go back to the drawing board and see if you can come up with something better, especially if you believe in inerrancy, like I know he does. So, back to his main argument here. Again, it's valid. I mean, if it's true that all the elements are taught in Scripture of the Trinity, then it would follow that the Bible teaches the Trinity. But one has not been shown, because he's left out some of the elements of the doctrine, namely eternal generation and procession and the idea of a tripersonal God. And this idea that they're homoousion, that they're the same essence or nature, it's unclear like how he understands that even, and is it even consistent with the other things that he wants to say. So it's not a successful outing. I think he needs to keep thinking about it. And there is a way forward, though, as I'll explain in a minute. But before I get to that, here's something that caught my eye about his piece. What he says at the very end, that the persons of the Trinity relate to one another personally. Now, what I think he's saying there is that they have interpersonal relationships. Now, if you're talking about the Father and the Son, why, yes, they do have an interpersonal relationship. They love each other. They cooperate. They work together. One gives orders. The other one takes orders. You could say they're friends, but it's not a level friendship. It's a hierarchical friendship, like a father and a son, or king and a servant. There is a personal relationship between the Father and the Son, and that implies that the Father and Son are persons, that is, selves, thinking beings, beings that have consciousness and knowledge and will and so on. The interesting thing is, this is not what all Trinitarians say. Bowman, at least in this passage, sounds like what I call a three-self Trinitarian, that he really does have three beings in there because they're three selves, because they have this interpersonal relationship going on. So in Trinitarian art, you get this kind of weird Jesus triplet thing. I don't know why they have those little angel head footrests, but anyway, those Catholics, they come up with some interesting art. God bless them. But I mean, the reason they're representing it this way is because they think the persons really are selves that really do interact interpersonally with one another. 
This is not what all Trinitarians think. The other contingent is what I call oneself Trinitarians, and they think the, quote, persons of the Trinity, the theologians love to say they're not persons in the modern sense of the word. And sometimes they suggest very famous people like Karl Rahner, Karl Barth, they suggest, yeah, persons, uh, not the best word. Maybe we should switch to modes of being or something like this, because they're not really persons. They're like, they're more like personalities. All right, so then I dialed up another evangelical apologist. I, I, I kind of like Bowman. I think he does some good work. I kind of like this guy, too. He's a radio personality in Southern California. He does some good work. He wrote a good book, for instance, about how to have friendly arguments with non-Christians, friendly conversations about spiritual things. His name is Greg Kokel. Uh, when he describes the Trinity, he says the one God has three separate personas. Hmm. Well, that doesn't sound like three selves. That sounds like three different ways that you live or something. Like if you're a mother, a daughter, and a friend, but it's really just all you. It sounds like that kind of thing. All right, well, that's not the same view. When the Trinity's podcast returns, my advice for Trinitarian apologists as to how they can actually show that the Bible is Trinitarian. Now this is the friendly part of my talk, friendly to Trinitarians and specifically to our apologist friends who do want to actually argue and not just assume and assert, but they want to argue that the Bible really is Trinitarian deep down inside. Not explicitly, but at least like when you understand it well enough, you will see that it is Trinitarian. So I have a six-step program here that you can follow. This will show you the path to actually proving this. Step one is to admit that there is no one doctrine of the Trinity. What happened in 381 was the bishops, with an assist from the empire, they enforced a set of language that has to be confessed. And it was unclear what that language meant. This was very true in 325 as well. When they voted on this language, they didn't agree about what it meant but they wanted to get those doggone Arians thrown out, and the Arians didn't like this language, and the majority could just sort of interpret it in two or three different senses. So for this practical aim, they accepted what everybody at the time knew was an ambiguous formula. But anyway, at 381, when I think you have what's implicitly a Trinitarian creed, it's not easy to see there, but I think it was understood by most of them as implying a triune God. Even then, it was ambiguous. They just enforced the language, and you know, the Trinitarians are still trying to figure out what the best way to interpret it is. And you have people who are very, very smart and informed and well-educated scholars who are still disagreeing with each other about just what this theology is. Um, theologians tend to paper over the differences and say it's just differences of emphasis or starting points. 
it can be differences of starting points and emphasis, but there are real substantial differences between Trinitarians. Okay, so if we're going to argue that the Bible teaches, quote, the Trinity, we're going to have to first say what we mean by the Trinity. You're not going to get the creedal language. You're not going to get, you know, true God from true God and all that stuff. You're not going to get the Athanasian Creed or the Constantinopolitan Creed out of the Bible. You're supposedly going to get the ideas out of the Bible. Okay, which ideas? Which Trinitarian ideas? Step number two. I think they should give up on deductive arguments from the Bible to the Trinity. And the reason is there's more content in these Trinity theories than is in the Bible. Remember, deductive arguments are not informative. Whatever information is in the conclusion had to already be in the premises. And there are things that the, the Trinitarian has to have in the conclusion that are just not in the content of the Old and New Testament. It seems to me you can't get the idea of a tripersonal God. It seems to me it's really, really hard, to put it nicely, to get three hypostases sharing a nousia, three persons sharing one essence. Eternal generation and eternal procession, not just me, but a lot of scholars think that that's hopeless, like that content just isn't there. The New Testament, rightly understood, just doesn't say those things. And again, it's not just Unitarians saying that, it's Reformed theologians and, and some uh, Catholic theologians and evangelicals and all kinds of scholars think this. Am I just saying that they should just quit and admit that we're right? No, not yet, because there's another way to try to prove that the Bible is Trinitarian. Before I mention the idea that it's explicitly asserted, as they say in the South, that dog won't hunt. They usually want to say it's implicitly asserted or assumed, but that's actually really, really hard to show. I don't think anybody has shown it. But there's another thing that you can try to do, which is to try to show that it's the best explanation of what's in the Bible that some Trinitarian theology is true. So the first approach every honest scholar just says is false. I think these second two are refutable. One way is just what I did to point out that there's more content in Trinitarian creeds than is in the Bible, and that's pretty clear. Another way to refute it would be the kind of factual considerations I gave in my podcast 189 and in my debate with Michael Brown. There are things in the New Testament that you would not expect to find there if the authors are Trinitarians, but you would expect to find those things if the authors are Unitarians. And these are really important considerations, okay? So that's obviously false. These, I claim, are refutable. Best explanation, the thing about this is that Trinitarians, they realize that they can argue in this way, but they usually just assert that their explanation is the best. That's not very convincing, right? A lot of times that seems to be the only thing they've considered. So the way that you employ inference to the best explanation there's two steps. You have to first separate out the uncontroversial, just observable facts of the situation from suggested explanations of those facts. That's the first step. And then after that, you need to compare the rival explanations of those facts to see which one of them is overall the best explanation. This is not easy to do. It's not something you can do in a five-page paper. It's not something that can be done by 17-year-old apologetics aficionados on the internet 
because you actually have to understand the different theologies and how they look at the New Testament and the Old Testament. So, the interesting thing about inference to the best explanation is that that first step is very important. If you leave out some relevant information, that could be a big mistake. And if you add just one more piece of information, it can flip around how you view a situation. The kind of inference to the best explanation that most of you are most familiar with would be like crime solving. Okay. Does anybody love like mystery novels or crime solving TV shows? It's a very large genre. People enjoy puzzle solving. You're trying to guess, you know, who the murderer is. So say, you know, you find this dead body in a bed in this apartment and you look at it and what happened here? There's no marks on the body. There's no blood. Maybe the guy just had a heart attack or something. Right, so as far as you can tell right now, your best explanation is, yeah, he just died of natural causes in his sleep. Okay, but then you see an empty pill bottle on his nightstand. Maybe he committed suicide by taking all those pills. Right, so the police might be working with this for months. Okay, but then another piece of information comes in. Oh, no, that pill bottle was there for months. His friends, he's a slob. He never cleans up his nightstand. He ran out of that stuff last year. Oh, okay, that one little piece of information flops you around to something else. Now you find out that his ex-wife hated him, and uh, she was kind of unstable and threatening. Even so, like now you think, well, maybe, maybe she knocked him off. You know, Maybe she put something in his coffee or something. Or One more piece of information could flip you right around again, right? The autopsy shows that he had a stroke or something. So inference, the, the best explanation, it doesn't just go in one direction. You don't just sort of figure out what the, the correct explanation is and get more and more sure of it. You're trying out these different explanations, and one new piece of evidence can send you off in a totally different direction. The cops might have been working on explanation number one for six months, but as soon as they get that new piece of information, they take a hard left turn they start coming up with something else. So that's why it's really important to get all of the facts of the case on the table, the textual facts about the Bible, what it says, what it does not say. You got to stop reading between the lines long enough to look at these facts. And then you have to look at some historical facts about how Christian theology developed over history as well. And once you got those facts, you need to then put on the table what the rival explanations are. And there's at least four of them. You think, well, it's just the Trinity and then everything else. Now, look, there's two different approaches to the Trinity. There's more than this, but there's two families of approaches. So the one self-Trinity theology says that the New Testament authors assume that God is a Trinity of divine persons, meaning like personae, personalities. And each of those has the individual divine nature. Three self-Trinity no, no, the authors assume that God is a trinity of divine persons in the sense of selves, intelligent beings, personal beings, and each of them has the universal divine nature. They each share that shareable property. Okay, those are two different explanations. Two more. Biblical Unitarian, the one I think is the best explanation. New Testament authors assume that the one God just is the Father. Those are co-referring terms. The man Jesus is his Messiah, and that God's Spirit, generally that means an aspect of, or power of God the Father. Generally, spirit language is complicated. And then there's the subordinationist type of Unitarian, which you see popular in pre-Nicene Christianity. Well, really up through the end of the 300s. It's dominant in some circles. 
New Testament authors assume that the one God just is the Father. He's the one true God. Oh, yeah, there's also the Son and the Spirit, these less than fully divine beings. And they're dependent on the Father. They exist because of the Father. They get their divinity. They get their lesser degree of divinity from the Father. Oh, yeah, and one of those two has become human. Okay. So part of what you have to do, my Trinitarian apologist friend, is to realize that there are several explanations in play. It's not just as simple as deducing the, quote, the Trinity from the Bible. Okay, we're on to step four. My advice is for the Trinitarian to get off your high horse and do the hard work of fairly weighing rival explanations. There's a lot of kind of lazy partisan rhetoric that people waste time with. You know, the Trinity is just something that all Christians have always believed. Okay, maybe not always, not all Christians. Most Christians have for a long time believed. No, not really. I mean, you don't find believers in a triune God in the year 150 or even in the year 250. So that's not true. How about just, you know, the Trinity is just obviously taught or assumed. Look, that's the thing that needs to be shown. Or that, you know, you just got the Trinity and you got all these doggone rascally skeptics, heretics, rationalists, just bad guys. Eh, they just don't like the Bible or they don't read the Bible or something like this. This, this is an imaginary opponent that a lot of apologists are dueling with. This imaginary guy who just, you know, he doesn't accept things he can't fully understand. So he's always going around assuming Unitarianism. Like he's just like blind to the obvious. Okay, what the Trinitarian needs to do is not just assert that their Trinity theory is the best explanations of the facts. They need to show it. And the only way you can show it is by comparing it with rivals. So now you have to talk about the rivals. And this is what they don't want to do. Honestly, partly it's because it's hard. It's hard to fairly deal with these complicated schemes. Step five is we all have to admit that the history of theology is a problem. Whichever theory you hold, lots of non-Gnostic, right, never mind those guys, lots of non-Gnostic, seemingly mainstream Christians held other views in the first four Christian centuries. This is true for me. It's an uncomfortable fact for me that people like Tertullian and Origen are considered big-shot defenders of mainstream Christianity in the early 200s. This is something I have to deal with. How did things go astray like that? Okay, but it's also equally well a problem for the Trinitarian. You don't see oneself Trinitarians, unless you want to count the modalistic monarchians, and you shouldn't count them. You don't see that view anywhere in the first several centuries. Why is that? Is the New Testament like Trinitarian and then like they fell off the wagon immediately in, in the year 100 and they got back on it in 381? So there needs to be a story, there needs to be a historical narrative here that says how things got off of the correct understanding and onto several other things. And this is true for biblical Unitarians, but it's true for any of those four views. And there's a lot of kind of lazy partisan sort of propagandistic history where you just sort of view everything as marching inevitably toward whatever your view is. When you look at the real history, it doesn't seem very inevitable, to put it mildly, especially if you look at the controversy after Arius. 
So between about 325 and 381. I mean, it looked like the non-Nicenes were going to win several times. Anyway, there's another step, which is you need to get the timing right. About when was the Trinity revealed? 500 BC or 1000 BC? No, come on. Look, if God reveals something, then people get it. God's competent. If he teaches it, people get it. Nobody got it back then. So it's ridiculous to say like the Old Testament teaches the Trinity. Of course it doesn't. God's not failing for like a thousand years. When he reveals something, it's revealed. He knows what he's doing. Okay, so the popular view that people like Warfield or Bowman would take is, well, you know, the Trinity was actually revealed during the ministry of Jesus and maybe Pentecost, right around there. It was revealed then, and then when the New Testament finally gets written, they're all just assuming this somehow. I think they actually can't take that view, though. Here's a little analogy. I don't know if you've ever heard of the uh, horrific hugger of Delaware. Back in 1982, they kept finding these bodies all over Delaware, these dead bodies. Men, women, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, all kinds of dead people popping up in Delaware. What's going on? All they have in common is they have these hug marks on them. They've all been hugged to death. This crime went unsolved for a long time. But finally, in these latter days, thanks to the new investigative techniques and DNA testing, they have cracked this cold case in 2019, and the truth can be told that it's this guy. <laughs> Joe Biden. Here he is with one of his almost victims. I mean, the Secret Service guy's looking the wrong way. You know, thank goodness she broke out before she was the next body. Now, <laughs> we need to keep the timing straight, right? Supposing this was true. What if you said something like, the people of Delaware re-elected the horrific hugger to the Senate in 1984? Now, strictly, it's true. I mean, he was the horrific hugger. But it's a very misleading statement, right? Because they didn't know that he was the horrific hugger then. And it would be pretty strange if they knowingly re-elected him, even though they knew that about him. Okay, so it's important to keep the timing right. Now, let's go back to this issue of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Now, what I'm really driving at is the New Testament here, but I want to compare with the case of the Old Testament. Look, if you're an honest scholar, you're not going to say that the Trinity is explicit in the Old Testament, but you're also going to say the Trinity is not implicit in the Old Testament or assumed. And the reason is because they didn't get it. Right? To imply it is a way of communicating. It can be perfectly clear. So this is why the better scholars who were Trinitarians they don't say that the content is actually in the Hebrew Bible. They say there are oh, there's hints and indications and clues. And what they're saying is that those people were not Trinitarian. But now that the fullness of truth has been revealed, we who know this new truth that God is the Trinity, we can look back and make better sense of certain facts than they could. So they're claiming that what was revealed about God makes better sense to us Trinitarians than it made to them. So there was an explanation of what was revealed and not revealed to them, but they couldn't get that explanation, but we have finally got it, okay? I think they're right to say that it wasn't revealed then, it was revealed later. Yeah, but can they say that it was revealed in 33 AD? I don't think so, okay? Because there's a similar situation with the New Testament and the Trinity. The Trinity is not explicit in the New Testament, 
And it's not clearly assumed and it's not clearly implied. Because again, if it was, smart people in the year 150 and in the year 250 would have got it. They didn't get it. They didn't have, for instance, eternal generation and procession in the year 150. They didn't have the concept of a tri-personal God with equally divine persons. They didn't have that in the year 250. A lot of them were just straight up denying that in the year 350. All the non-Nicenes, those were mainstream Christians. They didn't think that the new language of 325 was helpful. Okay, so really the situation is similar to the Old Testament. Now, if you want to say there are hints and clues and indications, they weren't Trinitarian then, but now that we're Trinitarians, we can better understand what was revealed. Okay, fine. But then my question would be, when do you think the Trinity was revealed? Again, when God does the revealing, people get it. But you don't see this stuff about a triune God until around the time of Augustine. Right? He gets converted in the middle of the 380s. And he talks about the Trinity all the time, the tripersonal God. And before then, you got to look really hard to try to find it. I really see it only coming in like in the 370s myself. But in the 350s, like nobody is saying that. Okay. So this is a way that you could potentially show the New Testament is Trinitarian. But it's, a, it's pretty awkward, honestly, for a Protestant to say that sort of the pinnacle of divine revelation happens in 381. Didn't we have the faith once delivered to the saints back in the year, you know, 50 or 70 or 80? I think we did. Okay, so there is a cost to this strategy. And one of the costs is, it looks like you're going to have to admit that at most— some Trinity theology is the best explanation of what's in the New Testament, but it's not actually part of the content of the New Testament, just like you do with the Old Testament. Another cost is you have to admit that there are some rival explanations that need to be compared. Again, it's no good just to say, hey, I got an explanation. Congratulations. Oh, my explanation is the best one. Really? Okay, why should I think that? Show me why it's better than its rivals. Hey, here's one rival. You got one God with like, you know, three faces on the head. It's really just one person. It's really just one self. Here's another one. You have an eternal fellowship of three friends and a dance of perfect love, things like this. That's another sort of brand of Trinitarian theorizing. And then you got the more uh, traditional origin, Tertullian, Novation, Irenaeus, Justin type of thing, where the Father's the one true God, but you also got these other gods. Uh, but they're gods, not in the same sense of the word exactly. They, they're not divine to the same degree. They're not necessarily eternal. They're not necessarily all-powerful and all-knowing. But anyway, they're kind of divine. They're like God. There's three of them, three greatest beings. And then you got this, you got God and you got the Messiah. And I think this is right. So if we can stop just all these simple deductions, which don't work, I would love to have an argument comparing the rival explanations. I think it really hasn't been done. I think we need to do it. And I think that the Trinitarian side needs to do it. Okay, that's all I have. Thank you.
Next week on the Trinity's podcast, I'll reply to a reply to this presentation by Trinitarian apologist Dr. Robert M. Bowman Jr. This week's thinking music is the track Calte Oren by Alex. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.